This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Sociology podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Derek Gatwin, author of the book, Rewriting Our Stories, Education, Empowerment, and Well-Being. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Great. I wonder if we could begin with by saying something about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, and I work in the Faculty of Education. And I became interested in storytelling because I've taught arts-based education for a long time and really saw the power of storytelling to change lives, um, not just in educational context, but in the broader context of people's personal lives, their families, their professional lives. And so that was one part that uh, I think attracted me to it. But then if you just kind of look around in society and culture, you know, even in politics, you just see how so much is driven by story and storytelling, you know, for better and for worse, you know, it's the narrative is such an important piece to how we communicate, how we understand ourselves, and really the society and culture in which we're a part of. So I sort of, it seems like an integral time to really think about storytelling and how we want to write our stories in the moment, but also for the future. Yes, you started the book with a quote from Toni Morrison, and the quote was, there is no time for despair, no place for self-pity. How is this quote so connected with storytelling? Well, I love this quote, and I, I, I remember the first time I read it, it just was so powerful. And of course, most of what Tori, uh, Toni Morrison says is incredibly powerful, and I think for me, it really resonated because, you know, it says that it really speaks, I guess, to the act that stories are our lifeblood and we live in and by our stories and through those social narratives uh, we tell. And another great quote that I oftentimes refer to almost in the same conversation as this one with uh, Toni Morrison is by Cherokee author Thomas King. And he says the truth about stories is that's all we are. And so as I write in this book, you know, we can rewrite our social political stories as much as we can rewrite our personal stories. 
you know, they are interconnected, they are influenced by each other. And during significant uh, crises, as the world is, is, in, is in now, and certainly as uh, Toni Morrison was, was discussing, it's important to remember that many crises are built upon stories. You know, some are damaging fear stories rooted in lies, and other are generative stories rooted in empowering ourselves and others. So Morrison brilliantly acknowledges how um, these moments of extreme crisis that require us to find ways of rewriting the social narrative, you know, by using our language um, and voices to create empowering stories to alter our futures for the better. Now, describe the importance of rewriting our stories. What, what are the processes that one must go through? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's, well, in the book, for example, I mean, there's lots of ways I think you could rewrite your story. But some of the ways that I look at um, in the book is framed in a seven-stage process that I call rewrite. So it's easy to remember, a good mnemonic device. Um, and, you know, we can begin by acknowledging that our lives are built on stories and then developing the capacity to listen to other stories as much as we observe our own. Um, and experiencing a story requires the ability to perceive, to process, and self-reflect. Um, and paying attention to our stories is part of the process, but we can also listen to um, other people's stories. And then perhaps that's probably the most important part, as I've learned through writing this book, is that our stories are incredibly important, but what's more important is spending time listening to other voices, particularly ones that are outside of our own cultural um, spaces. So we really start to understand, you know, the diversity of the world we live, and that certainly will build more compassion. So, um, yeah, that seven-stage process I can dive into a little bit more, but that's kind of the the piece that I brought in as a framing um, framing aspect to the book. Now, you talked about fear and the role of fear in uh, storytelling. Tell our listening audience a little bit more about fear. Sure. I mean, I think there's ways that we can rewrite our stories in any aspect of our lives. But what generated interest for me was fear. And that is that I suppose it feels like there's been an increasing culture of fear over the last 20 years. And I certainly have felt in the last maybe 10 or 15 years kind of an increasing levels of fear and anxiety that I've had in my life. And it's just sort of been a slow burn, but over time it just got significant enough that I said to myself, you know, how do I deal with this? And one of the ways, and this brings me back to sort of how I got into this topic of storytelling is I've, after teaching and reading so many stories um, through arts-based education, I just really saw the power of how storytelling can speak to a lot of different emotions we might have. And so I applied that same approach to the fear that I'd been having and saying, well, I have all these fears and they're just really stories. They're stories about the future that haven't yet come to be, but they still feel real to me in the moment. You know, and my physical body responds to that fear as though it were in the moment even though they're just stories and fictional stories in the future. So the, the way to 
kind of address that fear was by creating a new story that wasn't based in fear. And a lot of what I talk about in the book is how, um, how common it is for a, a lot of us to feel fear because society, you know, the, this narratives on in the news, um, and, you know, streaming television in, um, political narratives. I mean, there's so much now that is always wrapped up in fear and everything's trying to scare us all the time. So we can feel that kind of oppressive fear stories all the time and it can be really challenging. So no wonder, you know, we're writing all these fear stories because it's everywhere. But of course, if we start to change our stories um, and then that kind of trickles out and society can change more stories away from fear that aren't sensationalized, but kind of rooted more in stories of compassion and stories of, um, you know, I guess, love and, and, and aspects that are much more generative, then we can actually, I think, change that culture of fear that we're so rooted in right now. You know, you talked about the fear um, in terms of the flight fear and stress relationships on health. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that correlation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm I'm obviously not a medical doctor, so a lot of the research I looked into drew on what medical doctors um, have discussed. But um, basically, what happens is when we're in a state of fear, you know, our body goes into a state of fight or flight, and this is a this is important. This is what keeps us alive. It, you know, we're not. We're not supposed to avoid fear. It's just not something that's supposed to be occurring all the time in our bodies. And so when we are in that state of fight or flight, our body produces high levels of cortisol. And this has an effect where basically our body kind of marshals all of its forces in order to address that threat, you know, that fear. And when that happens all the time, it depletes our um I guess it depletes our energy, it depletes our immune system, and has kind of a, a wide range of effects that uh, that can really lead to, uh, you know, worse, worsening physical conditions. And this is something that I was really shocked to see in when researching it by a lot of the medical doctors that, that I was looking at, and how fear really had that physical correlation to our body, not just the emotional. Now, you also talked about scarcity. How, how does that play a role in, in people's narratives? Well, for scarcity, for me, you know, I think it's one of those kind of per pervasive aspects of fear we don't oftentimes think about. And the more that I looked into it and the more that I looked into the research, scarcity is something that's really built into our, our structural systems. You know, it's, it's a fundamental part of capitalism in terms of the economic theory, whereas you know, you, you want to create scarcity because that creates demand and then companies can, you know, manipulate prices or try to make more profit based on people's ability to feel a desperation to buy more things. And so that's an economic aspect to it. But then of course, economics are connected to the social cultural because a lot of us live day to day with those economic realities. So if you, if you kind of keep digging into scarcity, you realize how so much of culture is really about us feeling like there's not enough. You know, there's almost a desperation, you know, when, like when we're shopping, for example, 
and let's say there's a two for one sale on shoes. We only need one pair of shoes, but we get the two anyway, because we're kind of like, well, there's a great deal right now. I might as well get more because what if there's not enough? And so there's always that sense that there's not enough. We're not enough. And so our, our really our worth and who we are is very oftentimes correlated to a, a culture in which is kind of telling us we're not enough. And so I think that scarcity aspect really plays into the fear culture and, and why, you know, oftentimes we're, we're, we are responding to so many decisions in our lives through fear, through a sense of, of scarcity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, you also talked about language and perception in rewriting our stories. Tell us more about language there. Sure. Well, a lot of the the language, again, that we use is couched in sort of uh, aspects of scarcity, like I just talked about, or other ways in which, um, you know, it's it's placed in, in fear-based uh, kinds of stories. And so really the way we perceive um, the stories that are swirling around us and being able to really sort of consciously look at those and see their roots, um, how language is being used uh, in terms of um, the example I give in the book is how so much in, in life is framed as either or. So, you know, people are either good or bad or, you know, there's a there's one way or the other way to do this. You know, you're either with us or you're against us. And this is that kind of either or binary kind of thinking. And this inherently creates a deficit. It creates a, a, a fear because there's one right way and one wrong way. But of course, that's not how life works. And that's not how anything works, really. And yet we're still kind of using this language of there's always either or. And so I just, in the book, talk about how if we can think about and really expand those, the ways in which we use language, when we are hearing it's either either or this, that we think deeper about it, that actually it's on a spectrum. And, you know, choices, decisions, uh, I guess, experiences aren't just one or one way or the other, or I guess we can say black and white. There's a multitude of color and possibilities, and we have that uh, capacity to see that and feel empowered in that, as opposed to having that language really sort of printed on us and, and make us feel like we have only one or two choices in any situation. And so I think that's a liberating way of thinking about language to expand the possibility of the multiplicity or the multiple possibilities of how we uh, see our experiences. So that brings us to hunches. You talked about hunches in your your book. How important would you say a hunch or intuition would be in making decisions? Yeah, I talk a fair bit about intuition, or or at least it's kind of implicitly throughout the book. And 
intuition is is and again as i dug in the research what i was really surprised to see is you know the us military uses intuition in tr- in terms of training um troops uh you know the companies like apple and uh, pixar and some of the, you know these uh, other tech companies like microsoft they're very interested in in aspects of intuition even thinking about like artificial intelligence or other ways of knowing an intelligence that we don't oftentimes draw on. And some people ask, well, isn't instinct the same as intuition? But instinct actually is more like, let's say you're, you know, in in Canada, this happens much more than maybe in in places in the States, but I guess you're in uh, Utah, so you might experience this as well. And that is if you slip on ice and you kind of catch yourself, that's instinct. Your, your body makes a move, it stops something from happening, and it's on a non-cognitive level. And that's like an instinct. But intuition is almost like a deeper intelligence where you're not using your cognitive mind, but you're still able to have an understanding. So let's say maybe you walk into a room and there's a party and you feel somebody across the room and you feel an immediate connection with them. And there's some something bringing you over to them and asking you to go talk with them. And they haven't said anything. They may not even be looking at you and you do. And suddenly you find out, let's say you have some connection with them or, you know, somebody in common, or, you know, maybe there's somebody that, you know, your professional career kind of unfolds in a way because of that meeting, that's more of an intuition. And some of the research even calls that intuitive I guess we could say intelligence, um, a second brain. And it often comes from the body more so than our sort of cognitive brain. And we all have intuition. We all use it all the time, except we don't oftentimes talk about it and acknowledge it. So part of this is, is, and other people, of course, have discussed this, but part of this is to bring up this idea that that intuition is really, uh, I, I guess, connected and integral to storytelling and how we think through narrative and metaphor and language and all the aspects in which we bring to this. And I I was wondering, you talked a lot about uh, life, but you, you, you mentioned that the only constants in life is change. Explain that in the rewriting of your story. Well, I think one thing that's really liberating about thinking of our lives as story, and even you know, human history as story, millions and billions of stories that make up human history. And I think something liberating about it is to it's to realize that nothing is necessarily permanent. You know, you can always change your life. You can always change your stories. You can also keep those stories. You don't have to change them. But there's a Taoist concept about then the I Ching that talks about, you know, that everything is change and everything in life is change. And I know change is a very scary prospect oftentimes because we humans like permanence. That's why, you know, in some ways we create community and we, we like to root because it gives us a sense of security. But what might even, or I might invite our listeners to think about is, thinking of our lives as impermanent as opposed to permanent all the time actually feels more freeing and less scary 
because it means we can always adjust. We can always find different stories. We're not stuck ever in any situation. You know, there's always that ability and always that opening to find new stories and be a part of new stories. And so that idea of permanence or impermanence is really, a, 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 I guess, a key part of thinking about how not only our stories, but just really how human history and stories unfold. Things are always changing. It's never the same. And even when things are terrible, that doesn't last very long, and it usually changes to something else. And you talked about Vivian's story. I thought that was really something to um, think about. Explain to us how that was so important in your, your work. Yeah, Vivian's story, and that's obviously just a, a, a placeholder name to keep identity uh, hidden. But uh, Vivian was a, I, I work as a, a narrative coaching uh, leader with individuals, but also with workshops. And Vivian was somebody I worked with and she's a Chinese Canadian and her parents immigrated from China and she was born and raised. No, she was born in China, but then raised primarily in Canada and a Canadian citizen now. And, you know, is the difference in cultures. I mean, her parents and she grew up in part of the cultural revolution in China, whereas a young girl, she was not encouraged to um, become educated. And that's what she really wanted and had a real conflict with that culture and wanting to be a powerful person felt like she was a powerful person. And then she ended up coming here and finding more of her voice. And in that process, her parents, through no fault of their own, trying to love her, you know, really were pushing her in certain directions of her life, you know, not in ways that she wanted. And, and they used, you know, different tactics like, you know, guilting to get her do certain things. And that was really impactful on her and, you know, really trying to, I guess, address f feeling that the love was, was uh, I guess, placed through guilt when that's just was love for her parents. They just wanted her to succeed. Um, but trying to negotiate those different stories of, what her parents valued and how her parents' culture uh, were an integral piece of, of who, how they raised her was a big part of her past. And so the two things that I talk in the, about in the book as well is the idea of acceptance and surrender. And for her, you know, working through that was accepting her parents and accepting that these were um, out of love. This, these approaches were out of love. And then surrendering to the idea that this is who she is and this is part of her past, but it's also not necessarily how she has to be and the story she has to remain in. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've enjoyed our conversation and I've enjoyed reading your book. Can you tell us what are you working on next? Thanks for asking. That's a great question. This book has taught me a lot about myself and society and some of the challenges we face, but also many of, I think, the ways we can feel optimistic and the successes of, of dealing with that. And one of the biggest takeaways was not only should we be telling others our stories, that we should be listening to other stories and ourselves, our own stories, but particularly other people's stories. And I'm really mindful of this in an era where we have 
you know, many cultures, many groups who are trying to be seen, trying to be heard and marginalized groups and trying to tell their stories kind of amidst dominant culture. And so one way we can really support them is to actually listen to all these many stories. And so the next book I'm, I'm working on is how uh, we can develop listening, uh, listening as not just something like, oh, I'm listening to my friend, but deep forms of listening and how we can think about listening a lot more as a society, as opposed to always, you know, do the talking and valuing how talking at people is a positive thing when, of course, that isn't a positive thing and how we can actually do a lot more listening and show that as a valued aspect and how we can really engage in that, you know, the verb of listening as a practice. So that's kind of the, the next project. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. And thank you for the interview. Well, thank you so much.